We are glad you're here this morning. Uh, again, if you are here for the first time, we want to tell you uh, what an honor and privilege it is to have you with us. Uh, we're thankful that you would give us part of your Sunday mornings. Over the past 41-ish weeks, we have been journeying through the book of Acts. We've been kind of exploring it on a verse-by-verse basis. Uh, we, I love, I say we, meaning me, I love teaching through Scripture this way. I don't know if everybody else likes it, but I like it because it forces us to look at Scripture in its context. It forces us to understand the whole or the holistic picture of Scripture, especially in these movements of history. And what we've seen in the book of Acts is not just the sort of birth and sinning of the church, but really the call of what it means to follow Christ and how that's echoed um, kind of throughout these big missionary movements that ultimately lead to where we are. So when we ask questions like, what is the role of the church in the world and why does the church exist? They are traced back into these movements that we see in the book of Acts. And a lot of our understanding, our ecclesiology, which is the understanding or the study of the church and the reason the church exists, is traced back to our understanding of what is happening in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts should give us definition of what it means to be the church. And so uh, we've kind of examined it uh, really as a call, not so much as a story, but as the call of the early church and the call of you and I as followers of Christ. Like, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? Well, we see our call echoed and poured out through the book of Acts. And we've seen some amazing things. We've gone through incredible miracles. We've seen people that we came to know and love, like, have their lives torn from them. We've seen death and destruction and God's victory and God's deliverance. And we've seen amazing moments as we've looked through these, well, now completed 16 chapters. Well, this morning we're in week 42 as we start Acts chapter 17. And we are smack dab in the middle of the second missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas had taken the first missionary journey. Uh, They had gone 1,200 or so miles. They had shared the gospel in places that had never heard about Jesus. We saw incredible things happen. We saw miracle moments. We saw them return back and celebrate with the church. Uh, We saw them feel called to take a second journey, to go and return to the same churches that they had spent time with. And And they had a bit of a debate. Paul and Barnabas debated what that would look like because Barnabas wanted to take his cousin John Mark. And Paul said, I don't like that guy because he left us the first time. And they decided to split ways. And so Paul takes Silas and they begin the second missionary journey that we see in Acts. And they kind of head north along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and sort of backtrack where they went on the first journey. And Barnabas and John Mark, well, they take off in a different direction And they set sail for the island of Cyprus, and they go that way. And we, in the book of Acts, begin to trace the steps of Paul and now Silas. And we're in the middle of that journey. They have uh, been over a 1,000 miles. They have uh, journeyed all the way up through uh, Lystra and Derby. They've picked up Timothy, young, maybe 15- or 16-year-old kid who we come to know and plays an important role in Scripture, not just as Paul's sort of disciple, but as a leader in the church, as someone that gets as raised up and begins to leave a leadership put for, uh, footprint, a legacy uh, that we begin to know and trust as we read the letters of First and Second Timothy. They pick him up along the way, and as they're going, um, they begin to have some difficulty. They are shut out of several big major regions, and they start walking through Asia, and we learned a few weeks ago that the Holy Spirit showed up and said, no, you can't preach the gospel in Asia. Is that thunder? Or is that Jesus? I can't remember. 
Am I wrong? Is that not Asia? No. Uh, it's, they're preaching the gospel through, or trying to preach the gospel through Asia, but the Holy Spirit shows up and says, you can't go here. Now, we don't know how that happened or what that meant, but they were, they were compelled or, or stopped from preaching the gospel in Asia. So they just continue to head north, and they hit the next big province, which is an area called Bithynia, and they get there, and it says that the Spirit kept them from going in there as well. So for 350 miles, they walk from Leicester and Derby all the way to the coast, uh, to a town right there on the coast, and they run into the ocean. And they're like, what are we going to do now? We just got here, and we walked all this way, and the Lord has kept us from sharing the gospel. A few weeks ago, we saw that in a vision, uh, God shows up to Paul and says, I want you to go to Macedonia. So they board a boat. They sail about 150 miles across the Aegean Sea, and they land in a town called Neapolis, and they make their way into Philippi. And we learned that in Philippi, they went to the banks of the river, hoping to find a group of Jewish people gathered in prayer. But instead, they find a group of women that are down there, and they begin to share the gospel with them. And the Lord opens this woman's heart by the name of Lydia, and she receives the gospel. And her whole household comes to know Jesus, and they're baptized. And the church in Philippi, the Philippian church, is born out of Lydia's household. And she becomes incredibly instrumental for the, uh, the, kind of the, the promotion, not only of the gospel, but of the church and the movement of the church throughout Macedonia and even all the way up into Rome. And last week what we saw is that Paul and his companions are spending time at Lydia's house in Philippi sharing the gospel with everybody and things go awry. Uh, they're on their way to the temple and Paul casts out this evil spirit from this, this girl who had been kind of predicting the future for a family and the family's furious because no longer can she predict the future anymore. And so they have Paul and his companions seize, and this whole uproar happens, and they get thrown in jail, and then an earthquake comes and, sh- and kind of shakes the foundation of the jail, and, and, and everybody's free, right? It's in the middle of the night, and Paul and, and Silas and these guys are running out of the jail, and the jailer wakes up, and, and he realizes that all the prisoners are escaping, and he grabs his sword, and he's going to stab himself literally in the heart. And Paul stops, and he says, wait, 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 don't do that. We're all still here. We haven't gone anywhere. Because you remember, we talked about how if you're a jailer or a prison guard, the prisoners escape, you have to assume their sentences. All right? They escaped under your watch. So the jailer, hoping to avoid that embarrassment and ultimately take their death sentence, he goes to take his own life. And Paul says, wait, wait, don't do that. We're all still here. And the jailer looks at him and he falls at, at their feet and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right? What must I do to be saved? They say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your whole house. And they preach the the gospel to him and to his household. The jailer takes them back to his house, and they feed them and take care of their wounds. And they all are baptized right there. And the city magistrates, the leaders show up, and they kind of hear what's going on. And they they release Paul and Silas from jail. They say, set those people free. And, And Paul says, actually, I want you to come and walk me out, right, because I'm a Roman citizen. And so the, the, the city's kind of alarmed because they had wrongfully imprisoned and beaten and, and, and uh, uh, put in jail these Roman citizens. And so they escort them to the side of the city, and they say, please don't come back to our town. And we saw last week at the very end that, that Paul and his companions went to the house of Lydia, and they shared the gospel, and they encouraged all the believers that were now there, and then they left the city. Where we pick up today is they have basically been asked to leave Philippi, but we see the beginnings of the Philippian church, a really important church that was born out of Lydia's heart being open to the Lord and her desire to be used by God. And they are walking now kind of out in Macedonia where no one has heard about Jesus or about the gospel. And they are laying the foundation of gospel roots, evangelism. And we're going to look this morning about kind of how Paul and his companions went about this evangelism what it means for you and I. 
talking about people's responses, and then we're going to expose a couple of myths and lies that we tend to have bought into as we look at our call uh, as followers of Christ to live as evangelists. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to uh, Acts chapter 17. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into, uh, dive into it together. Lord, that's a lot of recap and a lot of history, but it's really important to understand, at least for me, to understand the movements that's happening, Lord, that, that what's going to unfold today in Thessalonica and, and in Berea is not an isolated case. Lord, it is a, a pattern of movements that we've seen um, as you've been intentionally leading Paul and his companions, Silas, Timothy, and uh, Luke now that has joined them for a little while, Lord, along this path for your glory. And Lord, as we're going to see this morning, sharing the gospel, evangelism, plays a huge role in our lives as followers of Christ. And most of us really don't know what to do with that word. We're, we're, we're uh, afraid of that word, or we don't like that word, or we think that that word is dogmatic. But we've come to, to put resistors up when it comes to the idea of evangelism. But what we're going to see is that it's not only an important part of what it means um, to be a follower of Christ, but it's an essential part of what it means to be the church. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think about our own call this morning, that you would reflect on our hearts, impress on our hearts the importance of what it means to really proclaim the gospel to the people around us. And so, take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to prepare you to encounter his word this morning. Kind of whatever that means for you and uh, just whatever you need to let go of or be free of, whatever kind of distractions you brought in here, just ask God to, to move those aside and to teach your heart through his word this morning. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. Just as we do each week, be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would, would move in them. Lord, this is your word. It is living and active. You tell us it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, God, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. And Lord, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, Lord, we don't take it lightly. Uh, we take your word seriously this morning, and so we ask that you would teach us through it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have left Philippi, all right? Paul and Timothy and Silas are together. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, we learned that somewhere along the way, they picked up Luke. And Luke was with them for a short time, but it seems that now Luke has gone his own way again. So our language is going to shift away again from the we's that Luke uses, because Luke's our author, uh, back to they. So we kind of get the sense that Luke may have, have moved on. Maybe he was just out there for a short time, I don't know, visiting his aunt, who knows. He's out there, right? He's hanging out. And so, um, and, and so now he's no longer there. So we know those three guys are there, and they are, have been asked to leave Philippi, because they have basically caused a ruckus that wasn't really their fault, but uh, they've been asked to leave. So let's look at verse 17. So uh, when they passed through Amphipolis and through Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and, prov and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, and so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob and started to riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. 
But, when they, but they did not find them. They dragged out Jason and some of his other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men um, who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. And they were all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that, this is, that there is another king called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was, sa- was saying was true. And many of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greeks with many other Greek men, Greek women and Greek men, excuse me. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they were and that they were there too, they were agi- agita- they went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea, and the men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, and they left the instructions for Silas and Timothy to join them as soon as possible. So we got a relatively similar scene that we've seen over and over again play out on these missionary journeys. So Paul and Silas and now Timothy that has joined them a, a little while ago, they have made their way to Philippi. They have been asked to leave. The city officials actually escorted them out of town. They shared some encouragement with Lydia's house, meaning with the new church that's being gathered there. And they leave the city of Philippi after that. They travel along a really famous uh, kind of trade route called the Ignatian Way, and it laid all the way through Macedonia and all the way up into Rome, and, and uh, it's a really famous route, and they travel that, that road, and they come to a couple of Greek cities there, and they find themselves in the next city over, which is the, the city of Thessalonica, the next large city. Now, Thessalonica was the most prominent city in the area. It was... Uh, Sort of the most prosperous, it was large, it was right on this trade route, it was a big deal. And they made their way into Thessalonica, and it says that when they got there, they did what they were accustomed to doing. They went to the synagogue, it was large enough to have one. Remember, Philippi was not large enough to even have a temple or a synagogue. That's why Paul went down to the banks of the river to find Jews that were there that he heard had been praying Well, Thessalonica actually has a temple or a synagogue, and so Paul and his companions go there on three Sabbath days, and what that really means is that over three weeks, so Sabbath being Saturday, marking those weeks, over the course of about three weeks, Paul goes there, and he spends time with the Jews there, and he begins to reason with them from the scriptures, right, proving, right, proving that that Christ had to suffer and had to be raised from the dead, and then it says, and then he proclaimed that this Jesus was the Christ. And we get some people that believe. There's some prominent Jews that believe. There's some prominent Jewish women that believe. Uh, There's some Greeks that believe. We get to see some people begin to believe. But the Jewish leaders, as the kind of the custom is, they get pretty fired up. It says that they get jealous. And they get jealous because all of a sudden these guys from out of town come in and they start winning converts, if you will, are people that want to follow this Jesus, and their voices are being heard and listened to, and it made the Jewish leaders really frustrated. And so they stir up the crowd. They go to the marketplace, and it says that they find some guys there of bad character, right? So I don't know, uh, you know I don't know how you go and find that, but you go to the market, and you find guys that aren't doing good things, and you say, hey, 
You want him to stir up some trouble? And they're like, yeah, sure, why not? That's what we're doing. And so they get them together, and the whole crowd gets super agitated, and they begin to kind of whip them into a frenzy. And, you know, who knows what they're telling them, but they get this angry mob. And this mob kind of storms the city streets. And it says that this mob actually begins to riot. They start a riot in the city, and they rush to this guy named Jason's house, right? So there's a guy there who we don't actually know much about, but we know his name's Jason, and we know that he is housing Paul. He's letting Paul spend the night at his place. We don't know a whole lot about him. We know that he is most likely a believer in Christ, but we just know that he let Paul sleep there. And the leaders had heard this, and so this crowd, this crowd, this angry mob rushes Jason's house. Now, that word rush actually means ransack. So it's actually a, like a bum rush. So they went in there, and they tore his place to shreds looking for Paul and his companions. And when they weren't there, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers out from the house, and they put them before the city officials, and they said, these guys are causing a huge problem. They're going all over the known world, not only talking about this Jesus, but saying that Jesus is also a king, right? Which they knew would rile up sort of the Greeks and the Romans in a crazy way, because Caesar was under the understanding, number one, that he was a god, emperor worship, but that he was the only king. And part of kind of Roman law and Roman rule was you could have other leaders, right? They could be other officials, but there was only one king, and that king was a god, right? And so you can go back and look at all your history and realize the importance of Roman emperors and kind of how they thought of themselves. And the Jewish leaders knew that if they told all these, these kind of uh, not Gentile people that there was a, a group going around saying there was another king, that that was the trigger point that was going to set them off. And so they said, these guys are going all over the world saying there's another king and that his name is Jesus. And that defies Caesar's law. So you're going to have to do something about that. Right? And so the magistrates listen, the crowd gets fired up and, and all that, and they, they realize that Jason and these guys are not part of that group, and, and they basically tell them he can't do this, and they make them pay their own way out of jail and kind of deal. And, and, and so Jason and the guys, they got to go find Paul, and they race out, and they get released, and they go find Paul, and they say, you have to leave. You have to leave here. This is getting dangerous. And so Paul and the companions kind of get out of town, and they go to the next town over. It's actually down to the south, a town called Berea. But when they get there, the response is really different. They do the exact same thing. They go straight to the synagogue, straight to the temple there, and they begin to teach the exact same thing that they were teaching in Thessalonica. But with the, re- the reception is a little different. In fact, Luke says that the people were of more noble character, right? So they weren't the sort of roughshod, bad apples that are happening in Th- Thessalonica. They're better people over there. And they receive the message with eagerness. And they begin to search the scriptures to make sure that what Paul and Silas are talking about was true. Now, they're not talking about the people in terms of the Greeks in the town. They're actually talking about the Jewish people. Because the Jews in Thessalonica, they got everybody riled up and were furious and stirred up the crowds. But the Jews in Berea, they actually searched the scriptures. Huh? So I hear what you're saying. What does that really say? And they begin to search the scriptures to make sure that what Paul and Silas were saying about this, this Messiah that was to come was true. And the same kind of response on some level, like people believe, some don't, you know, uh, some women do and some men do and some Jews do and some Jews don't, and same kind of response. But what happens is the Jewish people in Thessalonica hear that Paul and Timothy, or Paul and Timothy and Silas had made their way and they're preaching the gospel, and so they walk a hundred miles from Thessalonica all the way to Berea, and they fire up the crowd again. They get there, and they start agitating them. They come all the way over, and they fire up the crowd again, and they get them all kind of riled up. 
And so the believers there are saying, Paul, you've got to leave again. And so they escort Paul uh, basically to the coast, and he's going to take off for Athens, right, which is going to be a big deal next week when he shows up in Athens. And Paul and Silas and Timothy, excuse me, stay in the city. They stay there, and he urges them to come a little bit later. And so this is sort of what we've seen. Now, it's actually a very similar scene that we've seen a lot. We saw it in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. We've seen it through the first missionary journeys. Paul and his companions show up in a town, and they take a beeline for where the educated Jewish leaders are. Now, even though Paul's heartbeat, as he'll tell you, was to share the gospel with the Gentiles, he began by going to a city to share the, the gospel with the people that have heard about God, right, with the Jewish people. He would use that as his starting place. So every city he went to, he would find the gathered uh, Jewish leaders or even the Jewish people, and he would begin to share the gospel with them. And he would do the same thing in every city. And as he did it, one thing would typically happen. Some people would believe, some people wouldn't. But the Jewish leaders would get everybody fired up. And they would either be run out of town, arrested, abused, threatened, killed, or some version of those things. And it was the same scenario that played out over and over and over again. So the situation should sound familiar. And as I was looking at this this week, I started thinking, we could look at these situations and kind of explore what was happening in Thessalonica and in Berea. But really, I want to step back and take a little bit of a broader view and talk about the idea of evangelism. Because really what Paul is doing here. This method that he's using for evangelism is the same in all these cities. He's got a pattern of behavior and a pattern of ministry that he steps into a city and he engages in. And and so I started thinking about evangelism and most of our issues with the word. um, Because a lot of us in our Western kind of culture have got issues with the idea of evangelism. Um, We have issues. We want to run from the word. We don't like it. We have a lot of things like, I I don't want to push anybody away, or I don't want to come across as judgmental, or I don't know the Bible well enough, or some version of those things that sort of well up in our heart and cause us to bristle at the idea of evangelism, right? That's not kind of my deal or whatever it is. But as I started looking at Scripture, not just these uh, encounters here, but really Scripture as a whole, we have to understand that evangelism isn't just something that we are invited to do, but something that we are called to do as followers of Christ. So this morning, I want to look at the idea of evangelism. I want to look at Paul's method. I want to look at the people's response. And then I want to do away with a couple of myths or explain a couple of myths that I think most of us carry with us when it comes to that idea. Really getting on the same page, evangelism, by definition, is really just the sharing of the gospel message or the spreading of the gospel message. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means uh, good news, right? So really evangelism at the end of the day is gospeling. It's sharing of good news. It is not more complicated than that. It is taking what we know to be good news about the person of Jesus Christ, that we were dead in our sin and have been freed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it is the the active spreading of that or sharing of that specific truth. So evangelism is not talking to people about Christianity and all of its boundaries and all of its denominations and all of its failures throughout history. Evangelism is not talking about deeper theological arguments about whether or not you can dance in church or whether or not, you know, men and women should do this or whatever. That has nothing to do with the idea of evangelism in Scripture. The idea of evangelism in Scripture is the act of gospeling. It's the act of taking the good news that we were dead in our sin and that through Jesus' death and resurrection we have a life in Christ and sharing that singular message, right? Now, in here, we've talked before a lot about what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, and I won't get into that this morning, but the idea is that the gospel is that specific truth. It is not your testimony. It is not your story. It is not 
all of those peripheral things. It is a specific truth that you were dead in your sin and that God did for you what you couldn't do for yourself when he sent Jesus to die for our sin and be raised from the dead. That, in a nutshell, is the idea of the gospel, and sharing that truth is the idea of gospeling or evangelism. So with that definition, we have to look at what's unfolding in these texts and really wrestle with why we bristle at the thought process or about, the, about thinking about that word. Everywhere Paul and his companions went, whether it was a first or second missionary journey, this is what they engaged in, right? They engaged in this idea of gospeling. They engaged in the idea of sharing that specific truth in whatever category they were in, every place they were. Now, for a lot of us, we look at that and we say, that's great, that's Paul, that's Silas, that's Barnabas, that's Luke, that's Timothy. That's what they were great at. That's what the world needed, right? Very true. But that call, as we've looked all through the book of Acts, is not just a call of those specific five people but actually the call for all of us as followers of Christ. So as I began to look at that first interaction that happens with Thessalonica, I saw in there really the picture, the formula, the method of how Paul goes about this movement of evangelism. And I want to look at that, and then I want to look at how uh, that sort of applies in, in, in our life. And it happens in verse 2 through 5, if you've got your Bible and you're looking right at it. It says that as Paul uh, went into a town, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue... And on three days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and be raised from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, in those three verses is a very simple but very intentional uh, method that Paul does over and over and over and over again in all of these missionary journeys, in all of his encounters with people that were not yet believers. And the first thing that we see in there is, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three days, three Sabbath days, he spent time there, basically. So Paul, every time he came to a city, he went, and every time he went to a place, he spent time with people. The beginnings of evangelism is really, first and foremost, about going to where people are and spending time with them, right? Evangelism is a picture of us going into the world with the good news message, the gospel message that has so changed our lives, so compelled us. It's about us going with that message into the world, going to where people gathered. Paul would show up in a city and he would go to where people gathered and where they were having religious conversations or where they would begin to know there was a crowd that they could begin to share these truths with. Now, our church movement, uh, in sort of our, our modern church movement, has really done an opposite. We've talked a lot about this, that we exist to be sent, but our churches, we send, tend to use them as programmatic magnets, right? Like, we develop program, and then we invite the world out there to come into our doors to experience whatever it is that we are doing. So we run those programs up the flagpole, or we invent systems or things, and we invite the world to come be a part of what we're doing, right? Not inherently wrong. We want to invite the world to be a part of what we're doing, but what we do at unintentionally is we trade the inviting for the sending. So our beginning movement with evangelism for most of us is I want to invite people to come back to where I go to church so that they can hear my pastor or whoever talk about Jesus. That's the beginning movement of most of our thought process with evangelism, is I want to invite you to my Bible study. I want to invite you to my life group. I want to invite you to my church. I want to invite you to wherever my people gather so that you can come hear about my God, right? Now, 
It's, it's, of course, more nuanced than that, but that's the first movement for us. What we see in the Bible, actually, even seeing the life of Christ, is Jesus going to people, not trying to lower hurdles so that people can come to us, but people of God, God's people going out into the world in the crevices and cracks of culture and engaging people where they are. Paul went to where they are. He didn't walk around town and pass out flyers and say, hey, me and Silas and the boys... We're going to be hanging out at, at Tompkins Park, Thursdays at 7, come to where we are. They didn't do that. They went to where people were, and they spent time in their lives where they were comfortable. Evangelism begins when we go and we spend time with people. It says three successive Sabbaths. In other words, three weeks, Paul would go day in and day out. He began to know people, know their names. He began to engage with them and talk with them and know them. He spent time with people. Evangelism is not a 30-second window by which we try and disseminate information and then walk out the door of the other side, right? A lot of us think that evangelism means we have to go up to someone, we have to use our four spiritual laws, our bridge illustration, our evangel cube that we bought at Mardell's, we have to share with them in 30 seconds the gospel, ask them to surrender life to Christ, and if they don't, then we fail, right? I remember when I was in college, I was uh, my first year at Texas A&M before I saw the light and transferred Texas Tech for academic reasons. Uh, I was just aspiring to be more. Um, we, uh, I was sitting on this couch in the student kind of union there, and these two kids came up to me. That was for Jeff Scott, by the way. We, two kids came up to me, and they said, hey, I was a freshman. I was 19, and they said, if you were to die tonight, die tonight, and you were to stand before God, like classic evangelism kind of question, stand before God tonight, what would you say to him? If he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, right? And it, it's a question designed for people to say, well, you know, I've worked really hard, and, you know, I've done pretty good, and I've lost like 30 pounds or whatever, and God says, that's a good effort, come on in. And then you go, that's not how it works, right? You don't deserve to go in heaven. It's a kind of a classic response to say, only through the blood of Jesus. So, we, so I said, you know, I, I was a believer. I'd kind of given my life to Christ and kind of grown up a little bit with church, but God had turned my life around, and so I, I just kind of looked at him and I said, well, I mean, truthfully, I would say I don't deserve to go into heaven, and, you know, but it's only because Jesus died for me and gave me right. And so the guy stops me in the middle, and he goes, oh, so you've heard this? And I went, yeah, and then he left. Him and his buddy just walked away. I was like, oh, I don't, did I get that free koozie you were giving away? No, I don't even get the koozie? Oh, okay. So we think that evangelism somehow is, that's what we do. We race out, we try and disseminate information, and have you have give me a response. And, but, but really what we see with Paul is different. We see Paul going to a place and engaging people where they are, spending time with them, um, and, and, and that time rolls into other things. Listen to what else it rolls into. It rolls into that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and be raised from the dead. So what Paul did was he wasn't trying to transfer information, right? But he reasoned with them from the scriptures, right? Explaining and proving why Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. Evangelism is about dialoguing with people. It's not about just giving a formula of information so they can articulate this sort of illustration or the, the, the method that we have in there so that they can regurgitate information to us. Evangelism is about discussion. Reasoning there is really a word that, that kind of connotates a give and take. So I was reasoning with you. I was talking to you, and you were talking back at me, and we were talking about it. But Paul was reasoning with them from the Scriptures. And this is really important because a lot of us think that sharing the gospel means sharing my story. 
So I'm going to share the gospel with you by sharing my testimony with you about how God has changed me. And, you know, I grew up in a non-Christian home, or I grew up in a Christian home. This is what happened. I went to camp and whatever it was, and, and that's my story. And your story is important, and it's part of your witness, and we are called to bear witness to the gospel. But evangelism is different. It is a gospeling. It is a sharing the, the pronounced truth of Jesus Christ, right? And Paul does it by reasoning through the scriptures with the Jewish people. He says, listen, let me show you the anchor points of what I believe and why I believe it. Paul's basically saying, I don't care if you hear my story. Because Paul's story was amazing, right? He was walking on the road to Damascus, and God shows up in this blinding light, knocks him to the ground, and he goes blind for days. And that's an incredible story. If I were to stand up here and say that was my story, you would be compelled What if I told you that that's how I came to know Christ, that God through a flash of light and this huge sound knocked me to the ground in the middle of my sin while I was trying to kill people? That story is amazing. That's a testimony, right? But Paul doesn't share his story. He reasons with scriptures from the scriptures about why Jesus had to suffer and die. Paul engaged in the word because he he wanted people to know back and forth God's word, especially as he uh, debated with the Jews. That why scriptures were real and how they pointed to Christ. That it wasn't about his story, right? And he reasoned with them, and he, and he says that he, he was proving to them from the scriptures that this Jesus not only had to suffer, but had to die and be raised from the dead, right? So part of this evangelism movement is, is that people can't walk away knowing more about you than they do about God's word. They can't walk away knowing more about your story than they do about Jesus, Right? So Paul went and he spent and he reasoned with them. He debated. He engaged time. He spent time with them. It wasn't a 30-minute kind of quick conversation over lunch. It was a reoccurring, let's go back there, let's go back there, let's go back there. It was going back to the places, right, where he met people, right? And then the final lesson we see there is that he looks at him and he says, this Jesus that I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. This may sound simple, right, but it's true. At some point in time... We have to actually talk about Jesus in our evangelism. It all boils down to the person of Jesus Christ. I've shared this illustration before. I shared this story before, but I read a book by, by Charles Swindoll, who was uh, president of Dallas Theological Seminary and kind of big author and a pastor for a long time, and called The Finishing Touch. In that book, he talks about the fact that for a large portion of my life, I wanted to live in such a way where I followed Jesus, right, and I lived for him. And I didn't pass judgment or proclaim uh, to anybody else that they had to do anything. I wanted them to see God in me. I wanted to love people so well that they saw God in me and they stopped me and would say, Hey, you know, Chuck, here's the thing. I've never heard you like overtly preaching to me, but something's different in you. And I want to know what that is. In other words, I want to live the gospel in a way that proclaims the truth about Jesus. He said, for a large portion of my life, this is what I did. And then he said, and then one day what I realized was no one ever stopped me after, at 20 years and came up and said, man, Chuck, your life is so great. Tell me about God. He said, what I realized was is that I couldn't live good enough to point anybody to Jesus. Eventually, I had to talk about Jesus. And it was a profound thing that I read when I read that because I realized that most of us live in that category. Like, I'm going to be an evangelist, but I don't want my friends to feel uncomfortable about talking about Jesus. So I'm just going to live differently with them, right? Which on most occasions is great, but at some point in time, we have to talk about Jesus. Not evangelism at all if we're not. So we've got these 
little methods. And notice I'm not talking about formulaic movements and making sure you get all the right information in. We're talking about spending time with and going to people, using Scripture as your sole baseline, right? And talking about the person of Jesus Christ. Not around it, not around politics, not around whatever, but about the person of Jesus Christ and the simple message, right? That we were dead in our sin, that God raised him from the dead, and he has given us new life. This is what we see Paul doing. Now, the response to people is really, people's response is really interesting, because what happens in, in, in uh, Thessalonica, right? The crowd goes bonkers, and they get angry. Even though some people receive it, the leaders go nutso, and they begin to riot, and they get these guys from the street on their motorcycle jackets or whatever, and they begin to riot and get all bad character, and they ransack Jason's house, and they throw an absolute raging fit, right? Enough so that Paul and the guys have got to skirt out of town. We get to Berea, what happens? Same message, go to the synagogue, completely and totally different response. In fact, the people there receive it with eagerness. So what changed? Was it the message? Did Paul fail the second time? No. Paul's message and method were the same. He did the exact same thing every place he went. He went to the synagogue. He shared the gospel from scripture, reasoned with people, right? Proclaimed Christ every single place he went. So why does one town riot and one town receive it with eagerness, right? Because the truth is this. We cannot control people's response to the gospel. You just can't. Scripture is very clear that only God draws people to himself, that only God begins to move in people's hearts, and that only God controls people's response to his message. It's God's invitation and God's drawing. Remember in the, in, down by the banks of the river, when Lydia received the gospel, you know how she received it? It says that the Holy Spirit opened her heart and she was able to receive the gospel message. God is the one that is responsible for outcomes and responses. But when we are driven by our desire to see results, to tell people about numbers of people that got saved, that have done this or whatever, when we are driven by those results, we put so much power in our ability to articulate, articulate a correct message that we actually err on the side of really bad theology. We are called to share the gospel, right, We are called to evangelize, not because God needs you, but because God invites us into his work and he wants to use us. Evangelism is not for God. God could use the rocks. He could use the stars with a movement of his hand. God could do whatever God will do. God is not waiting on you to correctly articulate the message. But God wants to use you and invites humanity into his redemptive story. Because when we share the gospel with someone and God opens up their hearts, if you've ever been a part of that, it is the single greatest and most exciting thing you will ever experience. When God allows someone for the first time to walk into a relationship with him and you were a part of that movement. It is a grace-filled, exciting time. And God is showing you his character and who he is. Now I mention that because it's going to be important in just a second. So If we can't control people's outcomes, if I can't dictate whether or not someone gets saved or not, why do we even really engage in evangelism anyway, right? Like, so if I I don't know how people are going to respond, and and I don't know if one day I'm going to get run out of town out of a riot or whatever it is, or they're going to receive it with eagerness, like, if it's not up to my ability to articulate this message, then then why do we really do this? There's a couple of myths, and, and one of the first one will answer that question, but the, a couple of myths about evangelism, about why we, 
we really push away from it so much. Because even when I'm using the word, a lot of you probably are sitting here going, that sounds so fundamentalist. Like evangelism sounds like, you know, we have to go out in these waves and, and, and do things and we try and get people saved and we all come back and we, you know, it just sounds to me, it kind of rubs my Christian skin the wrong way. Like I don't like it, right? I want to be kind of relational and spend time with people and love them and love them and love them and, and then over the course of time share, share you know, my story with them. That, that, most of us are comfortable with that, but we're not comfortable even with the word. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and a couple of myths and a couple of lies that we bought into. And the first is that we tell ourselves that we're not gifted. I'm not gifted. That's not my gift. Evangelism is not for me. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, great. Trev, whoever, whoever, you know, these guys over here, whatever, that's for them. But I'm not gifted that way. The truth is, if we want to be honest, you may not be the most gifted articulator, preacher, storyteller, whatever. But really, gifted doesn't play a role in evangelism because we are all called to it. Obe- uh, evangelism is really about obedience. And we are called to share the gospel with the world. It, it, all over scripture, right? All over the book of Mark. It's all over the Great Commission. It's all over the book of Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3. We are called to go into the world and tell them about Jesus. Go and make disciples, right? We are called even to go and bear witness. We are called to go into the world, not Bring the world to us, but go into the world and bear witness to the gospel, to share the gospel message. We are called to be engaged in gospel. You are called to be engaged in it. I am called to be engaged in it. Whether we feel comfortable or not, that is our calling as followers of Christ. Every single one of us is an evangelist. Now, no one likes that because we're really uncomfortable with it, so we use the phrase, that's not my gift. But really, it's about obedience. In John 14, 15, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will obey what I command. Jesus commands us to tell the world about the good news. He tells us, commands us to go and make disciples. And then he says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. So not only is evangelism about obedience, but obedience is about love. So we've been called to it. And whether or not we respond affirmatively, like yes to God's directive, is actually a question about love. Do I love God enough to do what he asks me to do? Now, most of us don't like thinking about that because, of course, I love the Lord. Like, I love God, and God loves me, and we've got this thing. But it's a thing on my terms and what I feel comfortable with. But when God begins to ask me to do things that are outside of my comfort zone, i got to pray about it. i got to spend time wrestling with it. I can get some buddies together and make sure God's really calling me to that. God is calling you to share the gospel with the world. It is unavoidable. There's no prayer meeting that needs to be held. God has called you to it, and your response is actually one of love. Do I love God enough to do what he asks me to do? It's the same thing with other things in our life, ridding our lives of specific sin. When God commands us not to do things, right, our response and an affirmative to that is an act of love. God, I want to do what you command me to do. You call me not to engage in this because I love you. I want to do what you command of me. When you begin to think about it like that, It's kind of a game changer. It is for me because no longer is it just doing things because God says not to do them. Like he's your dad sitting there going, listen, don't do that. And you're like, okay, fine. But I don't engage in it or I do engage in it or whatever it is because I love God. Like he loved me first and I love him and he asks me, invites me, commands me, and I get to respond in love. Evangelism is about obedience and obedience is about love. 
that if we really love God, we'll do what he commands us to do. And it's not just about loving God, it's about loving people. That I love humanity enough, people enough, that I want them to know the God that has rescued me. If we really believe that this eternal truth, that the gospel eternal truth is the key to eternal life and eternal separation from God, why are we so stingy with it? Why are we so afraid of what other people are going to say about me or what that's going to look like? If we hold the key for all eternity, right, why do I not love people enough to share the gospel with them? But here's even the bigger question is, why do I love strangers more than I love my family? Because the hardest people in the world to share the gospel with are the people that are closest to you. I can go to another country. I can walk up and down the streets of Bosnia. I can walk up and down the streets of Romania. And I can talk to anybody about Jesus. But for eight years of my life, I couldn't talk to my dad. The guy I love the most in the world, I couldn't tell him about my own relationship with Christ. But I love him more than anyone. Why? That's what we're hung on, Right? people that are around us that God has placed in our life, we should love so much that we would want to talk about this truth. And it's not this dogma demanding, it's saying, listen, this is the God that has changed me. And here's how and why, and we talk about the person of Jesus Christ. At some point in time, in those relationships, because we love God and we love people, we have to talk about Jesus. Quit waiting for the day when they will stop you and say, hey, I'd really like to go to church with you. So, The first myth is that I'm not called, I'm not gifted, right? You are called, and you are gifted, because it's not about you. That's what God is going to do. The second thing, and the most common thing, and the last thing I'll talk about today, the most common thing I hear is this. I, Treb, I don't want to push anyone away. So I don't share the gospel with people, because I don't want to push them away. Because I grew up in a church or a system where that was offensive to me or whatever it is, but I don't want to push anyone away, so I'm just going to love them, right? I'm just going to love them and be here for them. But if the gospel is the key to eternal life, and I'm going to love someone enough to not share that with them, am I really loving them is the first question. But number, the real thing here is don't give yourself that much credit, right? Like you are not that powerful that you are going to turn someone away from eternal significance or eternal life, right? Don't give yourself that much credit. The truth is, in God's economy, no one comes to the Father unless he draws them, John 6, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, Jesus says. No one comes to God, and no one goes away from God, because we can't draw or push people away spiritually. So we hear those lines all the time, I led someone's, you know, I led eight people to Christ last year or whatever. He didn't do any of that. He didn't lead anybody anywhere. God allowed you to be present while he took the initiation with people and used you, right? He used you, but you didn't have the power. God drew people to himself. He wanted you to be part of his movement, but he's drawing people. Well, in the same way that God draws people, right, you don't have the power to repel people, right? You aren't that good or that bad. The reality is evangelism is not about you, It's about God using you to demonstrate his glory and to invite you into a deeper relationship with him. That when you see people come to know Jesus or see their hearts surrendered and God allows you to be part of that process, you fall more in love with God in the universe. I remember eight years later when I first shared my kind of heartbeat with my dad. 
And I remember his response after eight years of me praying and going, I don't know if I can do this and all these kind of things. Right before, my dad died when I was 22. So most of my kind of middle school and high school life and even college life, I wrestled with wanting to do this. was petrified. And I remember the moment that I sat out and shared all this. And, and my dad not, didn't just receive that, but he, uh, he kind of affirmed in me the things that I was dealing and thinking about, even my, my sort of gospel thoughts. And it was the single greatest moment, one of the single greatest moments in my spiritual life. Because God allowed me to see him in a way that would forever change my heart. And it wasn't because my dad made some kind of massive re- revolutionary step in his spiritual life. But because, because God, over eight years let me into how he was working and moving. He didn't need me, but he invited me to be present, and he showed me his glory in those moments. See, evangelism at the end of the day is not something we run from, but it's a beautiful invitation that we are invited into. And as a church, we can't separate evangelism from who we're called to be. We like to use terms and phrases like we love people and we want to be an opening environment and we want people to come here and do all. And those are all wonderful things. They really are. But they're not substitutes for our call to go into the world and tell the world about Jesus. They're just not. It's a both hand. We are called to open our doors and to love the world and to love our neighbors and to love people well. But in the middle of that love, that definition changes that we love you so much. We want you to know about the God that we believe not only has eternal life but sets free. And as John 10.10 says, gives us abundant real life here on earth, sets us free from the bondage of sin and slavery. I want you to know that God. And because I love him and I love you so much, I just want to tell you about it. And for eight years I've thought about it, talked about it, prayed about it, and never done it. And I know it's going to come out of left field, but I just need to tell you because it's that important to me and you're that important to me. And I know that each one of us has got someone in our life that we believe that God has been calling us to have a deeper relationship with or a spiritual relationship with or begin to talk about these truths. And I guarantee you he's probably laying that person on your heart right now. And you're going to come up with a thousand reasons why between today and Monday that you can't do it. But what we see in Scripture is that we are called to. And how we respond to that call is really about how we love the Lord and how we love people. And that the God of the universe has rescued us and saved us and given us life and given us reason to breathe. And we are called to love the world in the same way that he loved us, to share that truth, especially with the people that God has put right around us. Not a thousand miles away when we go wherever we go, Guatemala or whatever it is. Like right now in these moments, that coworker that you've sat with for eight years that has walked through cancer and watched her husband die. That woman that God has placed in your life. Those are the moments that we are called to say yes to Jesus. Spend time with. Go. Go be with them in their areas, week after week after week after week. Use scripture. It's the baseline. Who cares if they remember your story? I could care less if you remember one thing I ever say. That's why I put us in the word every week, so that you'll go back to it. Reason from scripture. This is the anchor point, right? And then eventually, talk about Jesus. It's the formula, the method for sharing the gospel, because we've been called to We love God, and we love people. It's an invitation, and it's beautiful. Let's pray.